Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present. Brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, www.ihconvention.com. This wonderful message by Larry Grile was preached many years ago at the Dayton Inner Church Holiness Convention, and it's titled, The Stone That Was Cut Out of the Mountain. It's good to be here today. We're looking into the book of Daniel, chapter 2, according to the title that's been given to our remarks this morning. We're dealing with the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. We want to hurry along here. Our time is limited and we have quite a quantity to cover. Daniel chapter 2, we trust that the Lord will indeed come and help us this morning according to our need. He knows all about our needs today. Daniel chapter 2, I would like to begin my reading with verse 44 as a springboard. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. This chapter, chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, is foundational to the rest of the book of Daniel. If one would understand the remaining prophecies of the book, he ought to understand the prophecies of this chapter. It is also important and foundational for an understanding of all of Bible prophecy. And so I feel like that uh, it was indeed uh, wise in choosing this chapter for an introduction to the thought of prophecy here in this convention. The nation of Israel had sinned. They were carried away into captivity because of that sin. As long as they were obedient to God, there was not another nation or world power that could conquer them. They would stand as long as they obeyed. But when they began to disobey God, prophets were raised up of the Lord to warn them that a time would come when they would be carried into captivity. The time came when finally sin had reached the point where God could do nothing else but fulfill his word, and he brought judgment upon the nation of Israel. The rest of the Gentile nations of the world were not sufficient in power to subdue Israel until they had sinned, and when that time came, God raised up the nation of Babylon. The Babylonians came into the land of Judah and they took captive Daniel and his three friends and others as well in a first deportation in 606 B.C. 
There were two other primary deportations that took place. One in 597 in which the priests and middle class people were taken, among whom was Ezekiel. And then a later final deportation, a major one, in 586 B.C. in which the rest of the people and all but the poorest were taken out of the land. It was at that time that the temple was destroyed. And so we find the children of Israel going into captivity. God was with Daniel and his three friends there in the land of Babylon. And as they honored the Lord when they were called upon to partake of the king's food, which was not proper for them to do, as they honored the Lord on that occasion, God later on graciously honored Daniel. And I'm sure the truth is today that if we will make up our minds that we're going to honor God when he's not popular, he will come to our rescue and help us when uh, we are in our difficulty. And so Daniel stood by the Lord, and here in this chapter, chapter 2, God is standing by Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the great monarch of Babylon, had a dream. He went to bed with thoughts on his mind about the future of his kingdom. And as he lay there thinking about what that future would be, as he fell asleep, God gave him a dream concerning the future, not only of his kingdom, but of Gentile world dominion. So Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and awakened, mightily moved and shaken by the import of the dream. But as sometimes happens with dreams, this dream completely left him. He summoned his wise men to come and help him to understand and to know what he had dreamed. They could not make known to him what his dream was. They told him if he would make known to them the dream, they would make known the interpretation. He told them that he had forgotten the dream and that if they were any good, they would be able to make known the dream to him. They said to him that there had never been any such request ever made of any Chaldean or any other wise men in the history of the world and that it wasn't fair to make such a request now. But being an oriental despot, he said, I will make your houses a dunghill and whatever else I can do to you if you do not make known to me the dream. Well, he saw that uh, what he said was they were just abiding time, hoping that he would forget about the matter or something and uh, they'd be able to get off the hook. He sent out word by Arioch, captain of the guard, who was the king's chief executioner, that he should go throughout the kingdom and make an announcement that all the wise men were to be destroyed. And the decree was to be carried out in haste. As they came by Daniel's house and the house of his three friends, they knocked on Daniel's door and informed Daniel that he was to die. Naturally, he made inquiry as to what was going on and he'd like to know why. They told him because the dream had not been told the king. Well, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll tell the king his dream. 
and I'll make known the interpretation if you'll give me time. Daniel was a young man of faith. He was a man of confidence in God. You see, he had stood by the Lord. He had purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself in chapter 1. And now when it was a difficult time for him, he could have confidence that God would come through for him. And so in this hour of his life, he takes it to his three friends, and they pray, and they seek the Lord. Daniel goes to bed, and God gives him the dream, and Daniel redreams the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. In the visions of the night, God reveals this to Daniel, and Daniel prays and thanks the Lord for what God had done for him. He praised the Lord because he had been so gracious to him. We do not have time to get into this prayer. There are many good things here. We're not going to take the time to deal with all of them. But in the prayer, we see the theme that God is the one who sets up kings and removes kings. That he is the God who changes the times and the seasons. Because this was the import of the dream that Daniel was given. God is sovereign. And if, if the book of Daniel teaches anything, it teaches that God is the ruler in the affairs of men and nations. That God is in charge. That he is altogether sovereign. That he has a master plan from all eternity. And he is carrying out that plan in detail from day to day. And all men are only playing a part either for or against, but no man can truly be against, for all things are going to work out God's eternal purpose. I'm glad to tell you today that it is not possible to thwart the purposes of God as far as this world and his plans for it are concerned. And so Daniel is praising the Lord because God is in charge and because God reveals the deep and secret things and because God knows what is in the darkness. And then he thanked the Lord and praised the Lord because God had so graciously revealed this unknown matter to Daniel. Daniel went to Arioch and he told him that he was now ready to be taken into the king and that he would make known the dream and the interpretation. Arioch immediately goes to the king in haste, and being a time-serving, self-serving bureaucrat, politician as usual, he says, I have found a man. Truth was that Daniel found him. <clears throat> and he, uh, he takes a little uh, feather in his cap there and says, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, he said, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation? And Daniel says, first of all, he said, Your wise men could not do it. He wanted to make that point. Your wise men could not do it. The point was that your wise men in all of their wisdom and in all of their knowledge and all their relationship with their so-called gods of Babylon are not sufficient to tell the king his dream or the interpretation thereof. 
But he says there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. This was the God they did not know about. This was the God of Israel. This was Israel's God, you see. And so Daniel is revealing the God of heaven, the God of Israel here on this occasion. And this is the God that reveals secrets. Daniel was not trying to get any glory for himself. He said, as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. He immediately put in a disclaimer. I am nothing. I have not deserved this or anything else. It's not for me, but it's for the sakes of those who need to know the interpretation. It's for your sake, O king, and it's for ours so that we do not have to die. And so he begins to tell him his dream. He said, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible or awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now this dream image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and that Daniel is here describing is describing to us a term that Jesus used over in the book of Luke, chapter 21 and verse 24, where Jesus spoke of the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles refers to that period of time when world dominion is take, was taken away from the theocracy of Israel. When Israel had sinned and forfeited their world dominion, they had a rightful place under God, which they lost because of sin. That dominion then came into the hands of Gentile world powers, beginning in the year 606 B.C. And the times of the Gentiles will not end until the stone cut out of the mountain without hands hits the image in the feet and completely destroys all Gentile world dominion. The, Gentile, the times of the Gentiles then is still on. We're still in that time and will be until the second coming, the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. Now this image you can see is an image of a man. 
It typifies the government of men, Gentile world powers. It typifies man's rule. Man rules in man's day. You'll find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3 in your marginal reference, a reference concerning man's day. We're living now in man's day. There is in the scriptures that time set forth that is coming called the day of the Lord. We're not in that day. We are nearing it. We are approaching it, but we are not there yet. We are in man's day. We're in the day when man still rules this world. And if you don't think man is ruling and trying to rule this world, just read your newspapers and read the latest articles and you'll see that man is still putting forth effort in these days to rule this world, to build some kind of new world order and build some kind of world utopia. But it isn't going to be done by man. You'll notice that this image is deteriorating in value. It begins at, with gold at the head, proceeds to silver, then to brass, finally of iron, and then in the feet a mixture of iron and clay. There is a gradual deterioration in the kingdoms of this world. That's a bit contrary to the general idea that man seems to have today based on the godless theory of evolution. But there is a deterioration here. Yet one notices that as you proceed from the gold through the silver to the brass to the iron, you find that there is an increase of strength and ferocity and power involved here. And I, I wish to, for us uh, just briefly this morning to notice, for we only have just perhaps about 20 minutes and we want to wrap this up, that we have first of all here in this great head of gold, according to Daniel's interpretation, we have Nebuchadnezzar represented as the king of kings here, as the head of gold and his kingdom of Babylon being the first kingdom that is represented here by this head of gold. The kingdom of Babylon was first and ran from 606 B.C. until about 539 B.C. when Belshazzar, the last person who is actually quite typical of the Antichrist, when he ruled, he was taken over by the Medes and Persians in that year, 539 B.C., and so this first kingdom of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. The second kingdom of silver then represents the empire of the Medes and Persians that came in and took over so that the first kingdom of Babylon was absorbed by and assimilated by the second kingdom. It disappeared as a singular entity, but it retained it's uh, something of its composition in the second kingdom. And this will be noticed throughout these, that each one being subdued by the kingdom that followed, yet somehow assimilated the former one, and it continues in a new form. 
So we have here this third kingdom of Greece coming along and taking over the Medo-Persian kingdom in 332 B.C. And then in 32 B.C. we have the Caesars taking over in uh, Rome and the Roman Empire being the great kingdom of, of iron, represented by the feet and legs of iron in this image. This image represents a timeline that begins then in 606 B.C. and runs until the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. And as a timeline, it's dealing with the succession of Gentile world powers. And as these Gentile world powers come and go, we see the deterioration and yet we see the extreme strength represented by the iron. And so I would take a little more time here on this fourth kingdom. We find the same thing represented over in Daniel chapter 7. There we have a more detailed look, especially at the fourth kingdom, and we also find this uh, in other portions of Scripture and in the book of Revelation. This fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. It represents the iron of the Roman Empire. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces, and is very destructive and subdues all things and breaks things in pieces and bruises. Then we find as this image comes on down from the iron through the feet, down to the feet, that in the feet we have the final last day's composition of the Roman Empire. The, pro the prophetic scriptures never regard never regard the Roman Empire as having ceased to exist. Prophecy considers that it exists right on until the very end of time. And it has indeed through the westernization process that has gone on, gone on down through time as well as through the Roman Catholic system. It comes on down to the present time in our world today. It has both the Eastern Empire and Western Empire representing the two legs of the kingdom. But according to this prophecy, we are going to be having in the latter days, previous to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to be having in the latter days a revival of the Roman Empire. There's going to come, as you can see today in this world, there's going to come in Europe a formation of some kind of confederation over there, finally taking the form of ten kings and ten confederated nations. That we're hearing a lot about today. If, you're, if your ear is tuned and if you're listening and if you're, if you're reading, you're finding out that this is in the minds of people and this is the rising sun on the horizon of the nations, this thing that's going to be taking place in Europe. It's the thing to watch and this is the revival of that that Daniel is talking about here. And so we have him referring here to the composition of this thing. He says it is partly brittle and it's partly strong. It's partly iron and partly clay. 
The clay represents that element that is brittle in the final form that it will take in these last days. And the iron represents that of original Rome that is still strong in the last days. My personal feeling is that this represents what those nations have claimed to be seeking after as a form of government, and that is what they call democratic socialism. The clay element is commonly held to mean that element of popular rule, democracy, whatever we wish to call it, which often borders on anarchy. And we have a good type of it and symbol of it in the French Revolution of the latter 18th century. But at the same time, the iron represents that that is strong and powerful and totalitarian and dictatorial among nations. And so in the last days, there's going to be a form of government quite well described here as socialism. And it is coming in on the world scene, especially in Europe. It will be a powerful thing. But at the same time, it will have some irreversible, brittle elements within it that makes it an impossible system. I think it ought to be well enough realized by now, by now that the governments of the world cannot operate under a socialistic system. It doesn't work. But I guess they'll never learn, and Daniel is describing that kind of a system here. It's going to be brittle. It's going to be, have in it uh, a good deal of weakness uh, and lacking of original Roman strength. But I notice here, after all of this is said and done in verse 44, he says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. In the days of these kings. Now what kings are we, are we referring to here? Well, I would like to take a look at two ideas. The first one being a secondary one and the second being the primary one. Secondary one would be that the, that the kings referred to are those kings of those four great empires. The first empire being that of Babylon, the second of Medo-Persia, the third of Greece, and the fourth of Rome. Being, of course, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Being the representative kings of those empires. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom. I want to tell you today that though God allowed the nation of Israel to go into captivity under Babylonian rule, I'm here to tell you this morning that at the same time, God was working on the reestablishment of his kingdom. God was giving a dream here in this case to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel was being lifted to prominence in that land by and through this interpretation of this dream. God was still at work giving prophecies concerning the future and letting it be known how all things would finally come out in the end. 
And God was graciously at work bringing down the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and showing his power to humble Gentile world dominion and bring it under his sovereign control. Then Belshazzar was removed from the throne and the nation of Medo-Persia came along and took over and God who had prophesied through Isaiah many years before and named Cyrus had Cyrus the Great to come and allow the children of Israel to go back to the land of Judah. They were graciously allowed to go back, and you know the story, and I want to tell you that during the days of those kings, God was setting up a kingdom. God was setting up a kingdom, and in the days of Alexander the Great, in the midst of all of the scuffle that was going on in the land of Palestine between Syrian kings and Egyptian kings, God was setting up a kingdom. And God was establishing Greek culture and the Greek language around the known world of that day because he's setting up a kingdom and he knows that he has plans for the future, uh, that he's going to send his own son and there needs to be a declaration of a message uh, in one world language uh, to send that truth out. And so the God of heaven uh, is laying a foundation because he's setting up a kingdom. And then I want to tell you also that in the days of Julius Caesar that there came a time, yes, Augustus Caesar rather, when he made a decree because you see God had said that he had some prophecies to fulfill. He was going to send his own son and he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin and the time came when God had Augustus Caesar to make a decree that all the world should be taxed and God was having the Caesar of Rome, the great final Roman Empire, to lay the foundation for the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. I want to tell you that God makes the wrath of men to praise him. He causes men to fulfill his will. He puts it in their hearts to do his will. And they have a way of doing what God wants them to do in spite of themselves. I praise the Lord for that this morning. They went to Bethlehem and there Jesus Christ was born and Jesus lived and preached under the Roman system and never did he try to topple that system. He lived under that system. He continued under that system and he died under that system. He died under that system and then that system set a seal on his tomb to prevent his coming out of that tomb. But I want to tell you there's where the system ended. There's where the system came to an end. I want to tell you this morning that there came a day when the system was finally defeated. Amen. It could make the seal, it could place it there, but it couldn't keep him in. He came out through the tomb. He came out through the stone. He came out past the seal. That's where the system ended. That's where the Roman system fell apart. And I want to tell you, he waits now. He sits on his throne and he waits until his enemies be made his footstool. Amen. I'm glad to tell you this morning that Jesus is getting ready to come back again. And oh yes, he had those Romans to build some Roman roads. 
And through all across and around all over the known world, the Apostle Paul and Peter and Thomas and James and I don't know how many of them traveled all over Roman roads and spread the gospel all over the place. Amen. The God of heaven is setting up a kingdom. And I want to tell you this morning, he's still in the business of setting up a kingdom. He's still working on it. He hasn't gone out of business. He's doing a tremendous work. And I, was, I appreciated the emphasis last night. You and I need to be careful that we don't get the idea that it's us for and no more. I want to tell you that God is at work and he's got a people and he's always going to have a people and I believe there's a place for the old-fashioned holiness crowd. I believe God wants us to maintain what we believe in and stand there and be all that God wants us to be and preach old-fashioned second blessing holiness and hold people's feet to the fire until they get the blessing because that's the key to revival and that's the key to orthodoxy and that's the key to divine blessing upon us. Holiness is the key. It always has been and it always will be. Amen. <clears throat> but I want to tell you that there is another thought that here that needs to be brought out and I have about six minutes now. <clears throat> I'm rushing against the clock here, but we've got to get the Lord. We, we've got to get him here, don't we? <clears throat> Yes. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. The primary interpretation of this passage, and I'm sure it is the correct one, deals with the ten toes of this image. The ten toes of this image refer to the final form that this thing is going to take in the last days, a political system in this world, primarily focusing and heading up in Europe. In the days of those kings, those ten kings over those ten nations, you see those toes represent nations. We find that over in Daniel chapter 7, <clears throat> where we have ten horns representing ten nations. It's the very same thing. It's just one from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective and the other one from God's perspective. Nebuchadnezzar saw it as a great man, a great image. God saw it as four terrible beasts. One's from Nebuchadnezzar's man's viewpoint, the other one's from God's viewpoint. Same thing. We have these ten kings, ten kingdoms in the last days. And the scriptures here are telling us that in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. The God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom on this earth. Amen. There is coming a glad day, my friends, when Jesus Christ is going to come back again and when the Antichrist has exhausted his three and one-half years of rule, Jesus Christ is going to come back again and take the Antichrist and the false prophet and cast them into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign forever. Amen. Amen. And he is going to give this old world its golden age. You see, man has been trying to do it for about 6,000 years, uh, but there's coming a millennium when Jesus Christ is going to rule in this old world for 1,000 years. Uh, and this earth shall know its millennial Sabbath. Hallelujah. There's coming a day, I want to tell you, Jesus Christ is a hero. 
and he's coming into this world. Our hope, my friend, does not lie in you and me. Our hope lies in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Our hope lies in the return of the Lord. This is the emphasis of Scripture, and it's one that we must maintain. I do not mean to tell you that we have nothing to do. I am only saying that the hope of this world lies in the catastrophic destruction by Jesus Christ of Gentile world dominion. Amen. And there's coming a day when God is going to fulfill his word and he's going to send his son and he's going to come and set up a kingdom that will be eternal. It will never be destroyed. It will not be left to other people because it will be nothing but strong. Not only that, it will not be left to other kings because this king shall never die. For he lives to live forever. So it will not be left to other people. It's going to break in pieces. It's going to consume all these other kingdoms. Because this is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Amen. This is the stone of divine origin. This kingdom I'm talking about to you today is a kingdom that is coming that is divine in its origin. Amen. It is spiritual now. It's going to be literal and earthly in the future. Amen. It's going to be brought in by none other than Jesus Christ himself. When all perhaps in that day will look utterly lost, but Jesus Christ shall come and do it himself. For it is not possible that the word of God can be broken. The stone is cut out of the mountain without hands, totally divine in, or in origin, without human agency, and is going to totally break the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, and all of those things, all of those forms of Gentile world dominion that are presently in existence and presently heading up into a new world order. Yes, Jesus Christ is going to come again, and I'm glad to tell you he is our hope. Praise the Lord. I am glad for him this morning. I appreciate him. He's triumphant. He's not a loser. He's a winner. And because he's a winner, I shall be a winner. And I praise him this morning. God bless each one of you. Thank you, Brother Grile. I'm sure that all of us have heard our president talked about a thousand points of light and his new world order. I was listening to a speech not very long ago, and I said, thank God. God has not turned this world over to the politicians. He isn't going to give the job to someone else. He's going to do it himself. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah. God's still running this world. Don't forget it. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on.
passing it on, keep passing it on.